There was once this spiritual retreat that I went to where the leader was teaching us about identification, about how easily we create stories that then we become attached to. And she encouraged us to notice our posture, notice how the stories translate into a particular posture in our bodies. To illustrate the point, she called a stop where we suddenly had to freeze in whatever posture we were in. Now, I want you to picture this because this is so classic. I'm like leaning forward with my notebook, taking notes, looking up at her. And I think I was like about to ask a question. So I had like my hand half raised. In other words, the posture said everything about my identifications. Aren't I a good student? See how smart I am? Look at me, aren't I so super curious? I totally get this material, I'm engaging with it. (laughs) Case in point, I was identified. So paying attention to our bodies is a really powerful way for us to begin to discover the stories we hold about ourselves and each other. And during the months of COVID, when we were all stuck in our homes in quarantine, I tried to dance as much as I possibly could. I studied ballet for 12 years, but moving my body is part of my practice, being in a state of flow in which, as all dancers know, you're not identified with one posture because you have to keep moving through with fluidity and with grace. I also really enjoyed watching Instagram videos of dancers which is how I discovered today's guest. Diavandre Jones is a dancer. He's an entrepreneur. He has founded Dancepire, which is a local Grand Rapids dance company whose tagline is an outlet to have fun, a community to be encouraged by. But they also have a dance crew called The Family. I became rather obsessed with watching Diavandre and the family videos that would get posted. It was just awesome to watch their talent, their swagger, their sovereignty express itself in movement in a time when we were all stuck. So I wanted to have this conversation with Diavandre about the history of hip-hop, the subversiveness of dance, the revolution of movement. So without any further introduction, let's dive into this episode with Diavandre Jones. So Diavandre, I'm such a big freaking fan of yours. Like I'm pretty sure I social media stalked you like for about the entirety of COVID. I mean, I think that's what was happening. <laughs> you know, I don't see social media stalking as stalking. Like I feel like since people put their business out there, like It's there for the world to see, you know? Well, and to be fair, I mean, you're a dancer, so your account is, like, really freaking entertaining. So it's not like you were just, like, talking or just, like, you know, it wasn't, like, just a private account. So thank you for not making me feel like a stalker. (laughs) So I want to begin by asking you about a little bit about how you grew up um, and set the scene for us. I usually like to ask guests about the maps that they were given growing up to make sense of their reality. And this can be a spiritual map, an artistic map. My parents did this, we went here. So it can be anything that comes to your mind, but it's usually the blueprint that sets us off in a particular direction. So tell us about your first map. Yeah, that's really good. I think there's two parts to this. Um, I'm going to give you a quick story and I feel like it really maps out the depth 
because I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, they tell you about your background and it's kind of hard to like kind of get the um, different variations of that. So my mom and her boyfriend are arguing at this point and it gets really heated and the guy leaves and everybody thinks he's gone. Like he's just OK. He walks out, whatever. And then maybe not even two minutes later, there's bullets flying in the house. Right. Wow. So it's me, my brother, it's my mom, it's um, my aunt. She's pregnant. She has two other kids, I think. Uh, she gets hit in the stomach. So I have a cousin named Miracle. There's other things that happen, but it's me and an older brother that's sitting next to me. And my brother is five. I'm four at the time. And my brother gets hit in the head and it comes out the back and he gets hit in the chest twice. And so this story, I don't remember that clearly. I don't even remember much of this story at all. But the reason why that's so important is because the beginning of my childhood from maybe since I can remember, I remember like my fifth birthday from that time up until 13, I took care of my brother. Like being the caregiver for my brother was like the thing. It was school. And then the second part that I was going to tell you about is church. And I need to like explain the depth of that um, and then taking care of my brother. So I always woke up and went to sleep with the idea of how's my brother doing? Is he fed? Um, you know, he couldn't really communicate that well. And I really learned. I just kind of knew things about him based on his body language. So very early on, just taking care of the house, being the man of the house, those type of things was kind of like my yeah, you know, um, and then on top of that, church was kind of like my second home. We went to church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We skipped Saturday, but we went twice on Sunday. So it kind of like averaged out to every day. OK, um, and so we went to church and got a Christ. And so church was like a huge part of my upbringing. Easter was kind of like my favorite time of the year because mm. we did like these games where, you know, whatever child could recite the story or get like the answer to the question in the book of the Bible. So I studied the Bible like it was like a thing. I needed to know how many books was in the Bible, what they were about, what the stories of the Bible were, all of those things. I didn't even listen to rap music. I didn't even know that existed until I went to visit uh, this is just a side story. I went to visit my aunt's place in Grand Rapids, actually. We were in Ben Harbor. I'm born and raised in Ben Harbor, Michigan. And BET 106 in Park came on. And it was like a DMX song. It was uh, uh, Meet Me Outside. Man, I was like, yo, this is so cool. Like, I was like, you know, like, but up until then, I had only heard church music. And during that time of watching TV, there was a Black guy in Ben Harbor who was killed on a police chase. And my dad was on TV and that was the first time I seen my dad on TV. Mm. Um, so I'm just kind of setting some maps for like kind of how my psychological world was built. And so, yeah, that was kind of like that was much of my childhood, school, church and taking care of my brother. Well, you said something that's fascinating to me when you were describing this experience of becoming the caretaker. You said you were reading your brother's body language that that was like something you were aware of a certain expressivity of the body, like a communication that was taking place through the body 
um, which I find fascinating. And I usually like to ask people, okay, like when did you begin your own map? When did you veer into a place where you were like, okay, I was given all of these mile markers and terrains as I grew up, but when's the moment that you can remember being like, I think I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go dance. I'm going to, was it that moment when you were like at your aunt's house? No, not that moment. There's okay. two moments. I think one, I'll tell you the internal one. And then I'll tell you the one where I was like, oh, I'm doing this. And I am <laughs> terrified. Again, I grew up in Ben Harbor, Michigan, way below the poverty level, about 9,000 or so people. Yeah, like just very different community. I grew up just around tons of poverty, tons of crime, tons of drugs, tons of fighting. That was kind of just like my socialization. It was sports, fighting, and girls, like that was kind of like my thing, right? And so going to church was interesting because I understood the Bible from my perspective and how we talked about church. But as I got older, lots of questions started to come to the table. We would have people testify out loud um, of like, you know, their week and how things were going. And I remember being like, yo, you were dealing with that same issue last year. You know what I mean? And I remember being like, if God's who we say he is, I don't understand how we're not getting delivered from these things. Like that was just so weird to me. I remember being a kid, like sitting there, like, this is like the God who is, you know, no weapon formed against us shall prosper, a faith of a mustard seed, just all these scriptures will come to mind. And I'm just like, if we are these people that we say we are, why are we around cyclical bad behavior, right? and exhibiting those bad behaviors. And one that really pushed me to the edge of my thought process is that the way my church is set up, it's on a street called Walnut. And there was a projects over at the end of the street. So there was like this housing project. This was before I even understood housing in America, urbanization and what projects are. But I just knew that if you grew up in the projects, like stuff was tough out there, right? Mm. And so I would be in church and the way they would talk about the people who lived in the projects was just it did not connect with this Christianity idea. Like it would, you know, they would say things like, you know, um, you know, they would just talk about how they were a bad character and behavior mm. and how we're different than them. You know, so it was like an us and them. There was like a real clear. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, and they didn't necessarily say them people specifically, but they would talk about criminals and they would talk about certain people. And in my mind, I'm like those people live right over there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and we never, you know, brought our church over there. And so I just was so like confused with what Christianity actually meant and what it looks like exemplified. So that was just like the start of like, I don't know, something's up. Something's, mm. this doesn't make sense to me. I needed to make sense. And so this is a very big defining moment in my life. My sophomore year, my mom, my mom got married my freshman year. Uh, my sophomore year, she was pretty much divorced and that left her with nothing. Uh, mm. She already didn't have anything before, but she had the state. She had like sex and aid and all these other things. But being married, like it just left her with absolutely nothing. So we're living with my aunt and my mom gave me a choice. She's like, look, I'm going to go move to Grand Rapids. She was like, if you want, you can stay here in Ben Harbor if you like. And I was, you know, a creature of habit. Uh, I already made up this story in my mind. I'm a guy from Ben Harbor. I want to show people that I can be successful. Right. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay. And then I remember the next morning, like, damn, my mom's really not here. Like, you know, kind of like <laughs> I can eat ice cream for breakfast if I want type of situation. And then a week later, it just wasn't that fascinating anymore. I was like, I'm hungry. I need a meal. Like, you know, but it really dawned on me that like I'm by myself and I have yeah. to figure this out. But more importantly than that, I was still going to church 
And I remember I was practicing over one of my crew members house and one of the church mothers lived right next to him. They did not condone dancing the way that I was dancing. Like what I do now was considered a sin. Okay. You could only dance in a certain expression to church music, right? It was very fundamentalist, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was terrified, but I didn't let them know. So I showed up for practice. We're practicing outside in the back and I'm like, oh my God, like we're literally right next to that. So I'm a kid, right? Like I'm like maybe 15. And so I'm just like, man, I really hope she doesn't like, she doesn't show up. We're about to leave and I'm feeling so good. I'm like, yes. And as we're leaving, she comes outside and I was like, oh my God. And she basically (laughs) condemns everything that I'm doing. She's like, oh, is this what you're doing when you're not in church and blah, blah, blah. And it really like, it was the final straw where I became church hurt, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That I was just like, dang, like this makes me so happy. I am not in trouble. This is my way of staying out of trouble. It's my way of like relieving all of the anger and stress that I have built up inside of me. And they're literally like not seeing that side of it. Um, And so that was like the defining moment for me. My mom found out about this in like interaction. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you cannot dance anymore. She tried to stop me from dancing. She's like, you can't dance anymore. It's like a Footloose movie. Uh, she's like, you can't dance anymore. And so I started to lie to my mom about where I was going and where I was at. And I went very long lengths. Now, mind you, some kids like go out, smoke and drink and do whatever. I was dancing. <laughs> okay. That was your great rebellion was dancing. But yeah, yeah, that was my thing. Right. And so, yeah, that was kind of like the moment where I was like, all right, I got to make this up as I go. It's so wild because I can relate to to this aspect of like keeping things a secret, right? Because I grew up as a missionary kid. The mission that we were part of was extremely conservative to the point where they had to lie about the fact that I was in ballet. They couldn't even even tell the churches that were supporting us that I was in ballet. Forget flamenco, though. I mean, like that was like that was like that was Jezebel's moves right there. That was some sinful shit, right? So so I want to say something because I think this is fascinating that there are these moments when we have to live in integrity to what is calling us and we move off the map of right and wrong that maybe we're given by our parents or by our initial container of religion or whatever it may be. And it's like in order to maintain integrity with our souls, we have to keep going, even if that means not having quote unquote integrity with like our parents, they may not agree or the church family or the origin community may be like, okay, what you're doing is wrong or I don't agree or that's not the smartest choice. So I just want to name that because I think there's something about dance that has always been subversive. It's always been revolutionary. It's always been something that people are like, mostly comfortable only when it's a form of dance that they've really seen established for a long time and they can like see on a you know on a particular stage in a particular setting. So I want to do a little quick drive by on the history of hip hop dance because I'm obsessed with the late 60s and early 70s. I don't yeah. there was just some kind of like wild bloom of creativity and art and fashion design and of course music. So This time period, along with the birth of hip-hop, was the beginnings of hip-hop dance. So uprock, breaking, locking, boogaloo, popping, they're all being birthed by Black revolutionary protest and coming in hot from both coasts in different styles. And it's like this completely subversive expression of freedom and liberation and empowerment 
Can you give us a drive-by of which parts of the history of hip-hop dance really called to you? Because you're, were you an 80s baby like me? Are you an 80s baby? No, I'm 93, actually. Oh, my God. I'm so much older than you. I don't want to know that. Okay, go ahead. You threw out the decades. I did. You forced my hand. I would have left it. (laughs) That's fine. It's all good. Okay. So which parts of hip-hop really began to, like, call to you? Or what was it that really, like, got you hooked? Yeah, I think um, being my background, we know it now. And so you can really relate to this. I had no education. My mom didn't sit me down and like instruct me on things. My mom had a lot of things that she was dealing with. My mom's a high school dropout. She grew up emotionally, physically abused in so many different ways, right? And so she was still working through survival mode. And so parenting just wasn't a intentional aspect. She did everything she think her best, right? She did her absolute best. Um, And so most of my learning came from, I watched a lot of movies. It was VHS, right? And so actually here's another setting on Saturdays when we didn't go to church, my mom woke up very early and she did hair in her, in her house. Right. And so we always had a stream of people coming into our place that I didn't know. And I kind of had this informal role of like serving them. Right. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like being entertainment, you know, making sure that they feel good, giving them food if they want some. And then back in my head, I'm like, mom, why are we giving these people food? This is our food, Uh, (laughs) you know. And so um, because of that, one of the movies that came out that like really inspired me was You Got Served. Like. Yo, when You Got Served came out, bro, like I remember sitting there and I was the, this is actually funny now that I think about it, um, because we didn't have so many movies, I would watch them over and over. Oh, yeah. It was disgusting how many times I watched a movie. So many different movies. I can just name a lot of them that I just watched way more times than I should have. And I said that because now I read like that. So I was like, oh, that's an interesting correlation. But Watching you guys serve was the first time that I like started learning dance moves, right? And mind you, I don't know if Drumline came out before you guys serve or after, but Drumline was another movie where I like looked at the talent and I would like mimic it, right? Mm. Um, and so that is what got me into dance. And then what actually got me into structure, organized dance was at Ben Harbor High School, white lady comes in, new dance teacher. She's like, hey guys, we're gonna teach you dance. And her dance was very, very different. We was like, okay, whatever this is. But we're excited because it was a dance program. What was she teaching? She was teaching like ballet. She had like structured warm-ups. It's just, it was just like I was used to dancing. Right. I wasn't used to like this, yeah. right? Yeah. Structured dance now, right? Is yeah. what we call it. And so it didn't last two weeks. Like for whatever reason, the program was over. And so she came to me, was like, hey, Dia Rodri, you're very talented. I want you to come train in my studio for free. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. Any reason for me to not be at home is always a thing for me. So let's do it. And so I go to the studio and there's women everywhere. And I'm like, yo, this is so cool. (laughs) And then (laughs) I'm like, I'm so serious. Like that was like my like primal thoughts. And then... I had like I had to wear tights and I was like, uh <laughs> the trade-off. You know, like I was literally like, I'm so I'm just telling you straight up, like this is my experience. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll wear these tights. And then she tried to get me to wear makeup for like a performance. And for some reason that was like my my line. I was like, absolutely not. I'm not <laughs> wearing makeup. <laughs> and that's not a thing, right? So yeah. that was my experience into dance and Going through that process of learning in this structure organization, I realized that their concept of hip hop was very different than my concept of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And so that 
started this process of like figuring out what is hip hop. I mm. moved here to Grand Rapids. Uh, I took, I found Marcus Shields. He's basically the guy who was me before I was me. He was in Grand Rapids. He was on So You Didn't Get Dance. Everybody knew Marcus. Mm-hmm. Amazing dancer. One of my like first mentors in dance. And so taking his class, I then learned structure hip hop, but still Marcus wasn't a freestyle dancer. So he wasn't like me. And so I was like, okay, there's another degree of dance happening. So the dance world has all these different levels of what hip hop dance is. And so that's basically my life mission is to marry it all together, to create curriculums, Mm. to bring the history that you're referring to, to bring the awareness of the intellectual and creative like genius of the hip hop community um, and give it names and give it space and give it utility within organized dance. Well, that's so powerful because you're you're kind of harmonizing between these different notes, right? And I'm fascinated by the ways in which a dance only becomes structured over time when people copy it. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's something mimetic about it, right? So it's freestyle until somebody sees something that somebody else is doing and then they start doing it and then other people start doing it. And I know that the world of music videos has played a huge role in that as well. But Absolutely. Yeah, I want to dr- let me tap on that really yeah, quick. Yeah. I want to add something else because it'd be great for whoever's listening to know this. Um, this is a newer fact that I found out that I uh, am studying more. So, do you know who Bojangles is? Yeah, tap dancer. So, what hip hop represents in our mind, that is what tap was to the audience you're referring to. In order to entertain in front of a white crowd, you had to perform in blackface. Bojangles and tap both the form of tap. Tap was like hip hop now. It was like, okay, there's people good at it. It looks cool, but we don't put it on main stages. And if we do, here's some rules, right? So the rules were you needed to be a duo. You couldn't be a solo tap artist and you had to be in blackface. Bojangles was the first guy to do it alone, to be a tapper and to protest in protest perform without blackface. And still to this day, he has the biggest funeral in Harlem of entertainers ever. That's including any name you want to name. He had the biggest one. And again, because he was bridging the gaps, right? He was able to bring other audiences into what this art form was and not just the dance of it, but the what it means to the community, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Hip hop, Arts has always been a expression of protest because there are very other avenues and platforms you can see black leaders who are able to be themselves, speak their truth unabatedly. And so that's what the culture of dance, that's what tap, that's what the history of hip hop has always been. Just with hip hop, you now have the community contributed to it. And so, yeah, I just wanted to share that. It makes sense, right? Because every time there's a breakthrough, There's a break out of the imposed social norms that are upholding systemic oppression, systemic racism. There's this kind of like gasp moment where it's like, (gasps) and then there's an exhale of like recognizing, like almost like intuitively we follow this urge, like we follow the oxygen through the tiny hole to see where it might go. And I want to draw a parallel between break and literally the act of following the creative edge, which is what we're saying is this emergent breaking from any existing or normative behavior. And I was doing some research and Jeff Change in Can't Stop, Won't Stop. He is describing DJ Cool Herc's breakthrough with break 
around him watching how everyone was coming to life. So he's like watching the life force in the room. And he's noticing that the dancers were going wild in the song's instrumental breaks, that it wasn't the melody, the chorus, or even the songs, but it was just, and here I'm going to quote him, he says, it was the groove, building it and keeping it going. Like a string theorist, Herc zeroed in on the fundamental vibrating loop path of the heart of the record, which he describes as the break. So what is the fluid edge of breaking into unknowing, which is obviously that the theme of the show is learning how to become comfortable in our discomfort of not knowing so that we can break through to these new creative places. So what is the fluid edge of unknowing that you experience as you're dancing? DJ Coolhurt is so instrumental to what hip hop is now. And even when you listen to hip hop and you understand the background, you then understand the music even more. And just everything about it makes so much more sense. And so, especially with the idea of what you're referring to, the break and breaking into the unknowing, DJ Coolhurt was so important is because he, he invented the break. And the break is this idea that usually when you go to parties, there was two things happening in the 70s. When you went to a party, it was disco. That was hip hop in the 70s, right? Like in the terms of like how popular it is now, right? And then the second thing that was happening is that songs were pretty much played all the way through. So DJ Coolhurt was the guy who, he was Jamaican, first of all. He comes from a dance hall background. Dance hall is very important to mention in the Caribbeans and the islands and their influence into uh, hip hop. But he comes and he's playing only funk music. So the king of funk at this time is James Brown. Fancy footwork and all of that, that's what people see. Like in their mind, when they think of great dancer, they think of James Brown entertaining the crap out of people, just moving his feet, like just crazy, mm -hmm. right? And so DJ Coolher, he's playing funk music, which is very different than other parties. So, and then what happens is he started to play music over each other, right? He would fade in and fade out. And what happened is as he would do that, he noticed people would dance on the break of the song. Every song during this time had a break. Madonna, Janet Jackson, MJ, everybody, Justin Timberlake, you know this, right? Um, and so he noticed people dance on the break a lot. So he started to infuse the breaks of songs. So he would have the same record of the two same records and he would just extend the break. So he gave people what they wanted, but most importantly, this breaking through, what he did is highlighted something people didn't know existed. So he saw that people were dancing to this and he extended that and then created this feeling in parties and in social settings that just wasn't, you couldn't find other places. And so what he did is he transcended what was the norm, like you just said, right? The norm was disco. The norm was playing, you know, uh, music all the way through. That was the hottest song, right? Mm -hmm. He made it where DJs became the life of the party. What you had in your record, you know, in your bag when it came to your records, you you couldn't tell anybody. That was only you because you could only play this tune and the way that you mixed it together made it make sense, right? And then so while he's creating magic, what we're listening to, you have people trying to be like James Brown doing fancy footwork, becoming the break dancers and the break boys, the B-boys, the B-girls, right? And so it just created this chain reaction of like artistic expression that was just like unmatched. Right. It was just unmatched. I can continue to go down that history, but I won't. No, it's so fun. And I'm just remembering that um, 
Oh God, what's the name of that show on Netflix? Oh, you talk about Evolution of Hip Hop. Oh no, that's also fantastic. I'm talking about. The, did you watch the Get Down? Oh, absolutely, loved oh it. I was God. so pissed when they took it off. I was like, "Yo, this is what we need." I know, me too. Anyway, so keep going. So, talk about that fluid edge then in your own work. Dance to a lot of other people. They come in from ballet or they come in from a certain structure, and they mm-hmm. can't imagine dance outside of that. By the time I got into dance studio, I had experienced dance in at least two to three different ways. I started off moving by making jokes in front of my mom of people who danced in church, right? So we call it shouting. And so I would be like, mom, who am I? Do a little dance move. And she would think it's so funny because it was so accurate, right? And so I was just imitating what I saw. So that was one form of movement and dance that I did. And then looking online or looking at um, You Got Serve, I was doing it again, but it was in a different form, different music, different sounds, right? And then just dancing with my friends to music and just creating my own thing. That's three forms already of putting movement to sound. And so when I came into the dance class and seeing people not grasping the idea of making up your own movement, I was like, oh my God. You're like mm. the lion in the zoo instead of the lion in the jungle, right? Like you're so oh, used to these, oh. you're so used to these like rules yeah. that like you don't even know how powerful the thing is that you have. Like you might hurt yourself because you're just so not sure of what you're doing and not don't understand the power of it, right? Like the lion in the jungle knows that there's rules and there's not a lot of them. <laughs> It's Mm -hmm. eat or be eaten, right? Period, right? It's work or get nothing, right? And so it was just so foreign to me to see people not be comfortable with their bodies, not be comfortable with movement. And again, transcending, this is what we talk about, like getting out of social norms. When he started to mix the songs together, we realized that it wasn't about the song. It was about the beats per minute. It was about the matching of those things, right? Things that we probably didn't, maybe esoteric record engineers thought about, but not just random people, right? Mm -hmm. But then it got into where people were DJs and they were engineers now. They were engineering socially now, right? That what they were doing was affecting people socially. And as a dancer, you understood that the song didn't matter. It was, as you heard it, the way that it comes in, you can feel it and then express through that, right? But people who grew up in structured dance, they're looking at the wrong rules. They're looking, what song is it? What mm. artist is it? Mm. How fast is it? How slow is it? But if you're a real dancer, you're like, yo, we can find the groove in that beat. We can find the beats per minute and then we can find the groove. And then from there, it's off to the horses. It's amazing. So it, do you, would you say that that is maybe, and this is a question, is this the number one block that you encounter with your students? This idea of you don't know how powerful you are. You're looking at a lion and they're still operating like a zoo kitten lion. And they're just like, I must move this way. This is the only way to move. So, you know, it, it makes me think of sovereignty, right? Because when I watch you in the Dance Spire family, when you all are dancing, it's like every single one of you moves like you know your royalty. <laughs> one of the things I explore on this show, actually, is this shift from mental belief to like embodied belief. So it's one thing to believe it's possible in a cerebral way, right? But to embody that it's possible requires a transition into like a um, a really deeply, solidly faith-filled movement in yourself. You kind of have to land it down into your body. So talk to me about this incredible swagger and that embodied sovereignty and how you help your students get past that block. 
I think the number one block, and it's just from my lens of development, is that insecurity is the biggest block for everybody I see. <laughs> like yeah. it's the it's like the rules are the excuses for the insecurity. Ooh. Right. Ooh. The like the Ooh. rules are like, oh, we, <laughs> you know, we do it this way. And so that's why I don't know how to do it. And it's like, no, you don't know how to do it because you haven't practiced it. You don't know how to do it because you haven't. You don't believe you can do it. You don't know how to do it, right? These, it comes back to the fundamental rules. Remember I said the lion in the zoo, there's rules, but there's just very few of them, right? Anything right. goes, right? And so those are the rules that I've learned over time. It's like, I have to believe it and I have to see it and believe what I see in order for me to do it. And then in order for me to do it, I have to like embody it and practice it. I have to exemplify it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's not how I teach when people come into my class. It's not about getting better. People come in class and I always tell them, you're not supposed to look like me, right? First of Thank all- Thank God. Can we just, <laughs> I mean, I, seriously, because that's at a level that's like, oh <laughs> Right? Like, I, I, and I say it, I was like, let's, you know, let's break it down, right? I've been dancing for a really long time. Yeah. I've done So You Think You Dance. I've done World of Dance. I've done anything, dance, dance, anything. I've done it and I do it so frequently. It's unreasonable for you to take this one class and think that, and to put yourself down because you don't look like me. Do you know how unreasonable and unfair you're being with yourself? You know what I mean? I would be depressed too, right? Like if I walked into a cooking class and you were, you know, on Hell's Kitchen and have been cooking the whole life, I'm not about to get mad at myself. And, and here's another, here's a way that I make it click. In every other aspect of life, or most of them, uh, we have a pretty reasonable understanding of skill development, right? Mm. Like nobody thinks they're gonna go to one class of, uh, you know, flying a plane or driving a car and expect themselves to perform it really well. But for some reason, when you come in dance class, like everybody just has this unreasonable expectation that as long as they learn it the right way, they're supposed to look a certain way, right? And so I just really break it down on why it's the wrong belief. And so now your insecurity, one is affirmed because yeah, you're not as good, right? But you now get to leave that and appreciate where you are. You're not looking at it as a, a pity party or you're not looking at it as, you know, oh, I'm not good. Yeah, you're not good. That's why you're taking class, mm -hmm. right? And that's why I'm teaching the class, right? <laughs> We're not supposed to be here judging ourselves. We're here to practice who goes in basketball and judge the way they're shooting no you're here to learn that part you can judge after 10 sessions you can judge after a year but uh it's just like unreasonable and so to me that's how when we talk about like unknowing things that's how i get people you were talking about the dance fire family and like knowing and embodying it's because i teach that way but even more importantly than that i lead that way right mm -hmm. they have seen me over time conquer things that most people would consider mountains right mm. and they're like um yeah and they see me deliver time mm. and time again yeah. mind you sometimes i did not deliver right and they seen how i how i managed when i didn't deliver and i think that's actually the most important one and like when you talk to my team it's not like oh devandre is great it's like they've seen me fall they see mm. me mm. come up short they've seen me have hard conversations and the way that I've navigated that, dealing with insecurity, that's meeting a challenge, meeting a unideal un part of yourself, and how do you respond, right? And yeah. so they've seen me do this over time. So they have no choice but to do it and be a part of the team or to take those bad behaviors is what I would call them somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. We don't speak down on ourselves over here. Mm -hmm. We don't 
tell ourselves that we're not capable of something over here, right? Mm. We're going to use dance as the example, but in your life, hopefully you're finding that things that you want to be consistent in. I'm going to show you with dance. Look at this dance routine. Looks really hard, doesn't it? Bam. Okay. I'm a good teacher. Let's go through this process. Trust me in this process. Trust yourself to be intelligent enough to learn. On the other side of this, how do you feel? What do you think? And it's just that process over and over. Well, and it leads to so many breakthroughs because I think the body's wisdom that is really where it's at. Because we can talk about things all day long and not be able to embody them. We can be disconnected from ourselves and you know, think we know something, but until we know it in the body, do we really know it? So there's like this muscle memory that you're developing in people to have the courage to put themselves in vulnerable situations because it's in that vulnerability that the breakthroughs happen. And the other thing I'm hearing in what you're saying is that there's this Somewhere along the way, well, not to go into like the whole history of philosophy and religion, but like this problem that we have with making ourselves nouns versus verbs, like I am a this, like even for you to be like, I'm a dancer, ergo, I don't do technology. It's like, no, you've learned how to move fluidly and not identify with one role. You see yourself as a verb, therefore you are able to flow and become because you have that confidence in your body. Totally. So I have a son. He's four. He'll be five in August. And so I absolutely love being a dad. And I have always respected women. My respect for women like quadrupled. Right. And it wasn't even like my respect per se. It was my fascination. And so the fact that a woman doesn't have to push any button on her body and the body knows exactly how to create a life, give it all of these nutrients, neurons, and the baby knows nothing. The baby comes out and it can't say a word. It can't do anything, but it knows how to lock on to the breast. The fact that like the baby knows how to do that shows that there is a infinite amount of intelligence that we just don't know about and we don't know how to tap into. And so when you talked about the body, it's about trusting. And even when you look at the body, right, even the brain, mm. there's still so many things about the brain we can't understand yet. So we have to understand that like, the same way that in nature you have soil, you put something in there, there's a period of like rest and, and, and waiting, but you have to still give to it, even though you don't see the result yet, trusting over time that the intelligence of nature is going to do its thing. It's the same that happens with the body. And so we have to like get back to this place of like understanding what the original t intelligence is. Intelligence mm -hmm. isn't going to a book and then being certified, right? Mm -hmm. There's a process and that's a process of identification, knowing what our competencies are at a certain level, but true intelligence is understanding the systems in which we function. It's so fascinating to me that we have all of this insecurity, but with all of this intelligence, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, like, so yeah, does that make sense? It's like, yeah. what rules are we functioning under, under to believe that we're only, like you were saying, I'm only this. Yeah. I'm only that. Because at any moment, a woman who does not have a kid, who's whatever title she's going to give herself, at any moment, her body has all the intelligence without her reading a book to become That's a right. mom. It's so profound. And it's like you're saying, look at the miracle of body. 
look at the miracle of bodying, of what this is. And dropping our intelligence back into the body also puts us in touch with our environment. It puts us in touch with a communal way of relating because these are the forms of the body's intelligence, is that it's fluidly moving in and through a relational world, a relational universe. Now, if we understand that principle, hopefully the listener can jump on board with this. Everybody has one, <laughs> right? Everybody has a body. So any activity that another body is doing, you have 95% chance to do that activity as well. Yeah, assuming ability, right? Which is a big assumption that we make all the time that we should be able to do things or that things should function in the same ways. Or that, you know, if we can do something or if we, we are limited physically or mentally, there's something wrong with us, which I know is not what you're saying, but I still had to interject. So, okay, keep going. Whatever it may be, right? There's always going to be ranking. And I'm not saying you're going to be number one in that industry. But I am saying you have the already the innate intelligence of a body and a brain with the support of a heart to achieve any capacity of life that you would like to. So now insecurity becomes less of an issue because it's like, okay, I'm aware of these laws. I understand that in this workplace, most people don't dance. But because I know that I have a body like the Avandre and I have a body like Steve Jobs, right? I can learn both dance and I can learn coding. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Steezy, right? That's what these guys are. GRV, these guys are on World of Dance. They perform at all of these different places. A lot of them are engineers. They went to University of Southern California, but we're so used to just seeing it in the bigger cities because of just the scale of numbers, right? I'm making a dance company for the everyday dancer. Yeah. I want the everyday dancer, the everyday person to come in with their everyday talents, right? That they're insecure about and that they don't understand. And I want to use dance to show them that you have so much more that you're capable of, that mm. the only way it can be shown or you can tap into it is when you decide to do so. Just yes. the same way when you decided to take this class. It's so powerful. I've seen you do this with with your students where you feature little stories about them. And it's like, you're a banker during the day, but you are a kick-ass dancer also. And it's like, it reminds me of a little tiny story I'll share, which is that I had this identification in my mind that I could not run. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if anyone else has this. I mean, I would just see people running early in the morning and I would just be like, why? Like, why? Why? Why are you doing that to yourself? You couldn't pay me money to go out and jog or run. I'm just like, I couldn't understand it. Now, I was learning about identification in a spiritual retreat, and I was learning about the ways in which we create these stories that then we become imprisoned by. And so we were told to pay attention to the next time we said, I am a or I am not a. So I'm a person who does this or I don't do that. And to flag it and then go do that thing. And I was like, that's amazing. I'm going to do that. So I came home from the retreat and a friend of mine asked me if I would train for a, I don't know, 5K run with her. And I was like, oh, hell no. No, I am not a runner. And it was like, oh, crap. I just, I just did, did it. I just ding, did ding, it. Ding. And then I was like, oh, shit, now I have to run. <laughs> like, And the whole time I started doing it, I was like, I can't do this. And it was like, I was dying. I was dying. And it occurred to me as I began this exploration that actually the story began when I was like a 10-year-old kid and we had a gym class outside in Spain early in March when the cottonwood trees were just like crazy and I have terrible allergies. And I had an asthma attack from the allergies. 
And so in my body, I had connected this story of running and asthma. Of course, you know the rest of the story. It turns out I could run just fine. I ran the race and I still run. So it's Look how one impressive. Of, yes. But what you're saying is get in the body. You don't know what you can do. Allow yourself to move into the unknown and befriend unknowing so that you can be fluid and be powerful in that fluidity. You just like spelled it out. So I want to like give it a name. This is one of the things I do with my dance company. You're not allowed to say what you are or what you are not. You're only allowed to say what you believe. Mm. And that's what you just said. You were saying that, yo, instead of me saying that I'm this or I'm I'm not that, you went through and said, why do I believe this? Mm. Because our beliefs are always changing. And when we understand that we operate on beliefs, that means that we're accepting the fact that we are always changing. But when you say I am this and I am not this, you're now placing yourself in a place that is unchangeable until you're ready to say something different. And the process it takes for us to be ready to say something different is enormous, right? And so therefore, I try not to create a prison in that, but I make us conscious of that. What is it that you believe and Mm. state your belief? And if you're okay with that belief, then be okay with that. Now, if somebody challenges that belief, that's okay. You should be able to stand on your belief in a reasonable way. You see, now we can exchange beliefs, right? Oh, I believe this because of this. Oh, interesting. I believe this because of this. Oh, these beliefs connect or maybe they don't connect because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Now we're we're in this state of flow that you keep referring to this fluidity of exchanging ideas without being triggered, without yeah. being offended, without feeling insecure, without attaching these feelings of identity being attacked because we're referring to something we can control. Because a lot of the times, and it's interesting to say that out loud, we say that I am this, and we say it in a way that we can't control that. It's just the way we're made. It's Mm. just who we are. It's just how we were born, Mm. right? But if we say, this is what I believe, now you're accepting the fact that your beliefs are your responsibility. Oh, damn. Okay. Let's go here because I believe that, I believe that it's really important for us to recover our agency. And our, you know, how I was describing earlier your dancers and the sovereignty, the power of movement of saying, I am responsible. I have a part to play. So one of my favorite authors, Barbara Holmes, she writes about the contemplative practices of the Black church in these like really expansive ways that makes my heart sing. And she's talking about hip hop. And she says, this moment of contemplation, and I already love that she draws that correlation between dance and contemplation, but she says, This moment of contemplation comes in the creation of the artistic expression of their social, religious, and political views. The performance is the post-contemplative moment when they claim their identity and then witness in the poetry that taunts, tells, and terrorizes. Even more important, they reject the status quo through the exaggeration and utterance of dress. And then she quotes John Michael Spencer in describing rap messages as the insurrection of the subjugated knowledges, <laughs> which I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Um, and as you know, and as we've been talking about this relationship between movement and unknowing and liberation and freedom out of existing structures, what do you feel is being unsaid and unmade and undone through dance for the sake of creating an insurrection of a new way of knowing in our world. So how is that the political, social responsibility? How is that manifesting itself in dance? I think that's like the unspoken truth that anybody who listens to hip hop knows, but people who are 
make a title. I don't listen to hip hop or I am not a hip hop listener, right? For whatever reason, it's what they don't know. People who are in the hip hop understand that it's like the CNN for the black community. You can't go to the CNN and get the black voice and get what the black community is believing, thinking, feeling, or seeing. You can go to hip hop though. The biggest hip hop artist of this past year, Lil Baby, he made a, a song called um, Bigger Picture. The chorus is, it's bigger than black and white. It's a change that is not gonna come overnight, but we gotta start somewhere. This is a young dude, not even 23 maybe, felonies, drugs, charges, right? Growing up in his environment and it's how they relate to our system and the structure. So now we can go down a whole different uh, concept of like the socialization and how being brought up in uh, in poor socioeconomic uh, cities and how there's just so many traps. And if you fall into one, you're not getting out. If you fall into incarceration, it's almost done from a housing perspective, a voting perspective, right? So how do you express your political views? How do you express your struggles that you have outside of like responding with anger. And when you respond with anger, people say you shouldn't have done it. You express it through your creativity. You express it through your dance. You express it through how you dress. You express it through uh, your poems and the way that you rap. Uh, and I tell people all the time. Uh, so I teach at like Grand Rapids Ballet. I teach at like these very places where like hip hop is not even touching their like ears, their maybe. Universe. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so I walk in and a few lessons. The first one is always hip hop is not a move, it's a culture. Right. So if you know how to do the wave, you know how to do the moonwalk, if you know how to do the latest TikTok dance, it doesn't make you a hip hop dancer. Right. Uh, so that's the first lesson. The second lesson is hip hop music. Right. I always ask who listens to hip hop music. And so usually it's probably 25 percent of the class that's being generous. Um, and so then I'll say when you listen to hip hop music, you will hear artists. Right. You can hear Little Baby. You can hear Dub Baby. You can hear. Uh, Cardi B, you can hear J. Cole, right? J. Cole talks about being from Fayetteville, North Carolina, growing up with a white mom, black dad, going to New York to get a college degree, believing that he's going to get a record deal before he does, right? Mm. Eminem talks about being from Detroit, right? He talks about being from Detroit, being considered white trailer trash, dealing with mental health issues, blah, blah, blah. Big Sean talks about being from Detroit, you know, growing up and wanting to be an artist, coming up from a middle-class, blue-collar working family, blah, blah. When you listen to these artists, when you could get past the judgment of the language they're using or the genre of music that they're using, you hear their stories. These are just mm -hmm. verbal books. These are them telling their stories and whatever revelations they have because they don't have another platform. Nobody's paying them to come speak to their corporate organization. Nobody's, uh, they don't have the money to build the social organizations that they want to build. They don't have the funding to build the startup that they want to have, right? So what they do is they take their story and they make it rhyme. They put it in a fashionable way and they package it in a way that fits with their personality. With his Eminem, he's going to tell you all the things that's terrible about him before you do. So guess what? Now you can't hurt his feelings anymore because he grew up with his feelings being hurt. It, it just shows like that is, um, I'm trying to put it in layman's term of how I deliver this in a classroom setting, right. right? This is how I get people to say, oh man, let me get past my judgment. And then I end with, you don't have to listen to hip hop music, but you have to respect that it's their story. Mm. The goal is not to demonize hip hop because when you demonize hip hop, now it's the other, right? But when you humanize it and you understand that, hey, this is their expression, you get to say, oh, I don't get to judge their expression. I get to choose if I listen to it, right? 
but I don't get to judge their expression. And I think that's the transformative thing that's happening in our classes, right? So whether you're white or black, we're not talking about white or black. We're talking about hip hop, its form, and the people who operate in it. And it automatically makes you start to address some of your beliefs. Mm. And guess what? I don't have to bring up race at all. Usually somebody does. It's being digested at a cellular level. And I mean, this is why I loved her quote too, is because she's saying, first of all, the claiming of the identity, (laughs) like let's pay attention to that necessary fundamental need that human beings have, that I have a right to be here. And if for an entire person of color's life, there's a, uh, a message, an oppressive system in which the right to be there is not fundamentally there. That's right. How much more necessary is is it for that person to come out with like a lot of freaking swagger and pride and be like, no, 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 I am here, you yeah. know? And so that there's that identity piece that I think is so powerful. And it's incredible to me what you're saying, which is that there's this function of the mind that you're really working with students in and you're, you're very subtly undoing and unsaying the operations of the brain that tends to be like, I am a this, I'm not a this, that person's a that, or I don't listen to this music. So you're pulling at the threads of judgment and inviting people to empty what they think they know to yeah. make room for a new way of knowing. For Which sure. I would just say right there, this is how, and this is why I love that Barbara Holmes calls this a contemplation. It's a contemplative form of embodied movement prayer that you're doing. You're inviting people to empty out what is in their minds, even their own insecurities about themselves, and move with a different kind of relational trust. Mm-hmm. A lot of people look at hip hop and they automatically go to the degradation side of things, right? Whether it's the language, whether it's some of the content, um, and that I can go down that road too. I love it. Uh, what I will say is that I think, a, like, when you look from the '50s up until the '90s, and you look at hip hop, you know, people are like, "Oh man, the music's so bad." Blah blah. Nobody ever looks at the correlation of the degradation of black leadership in our country. There was a time where when you wanted a pin on Black America, you could go talk to Malcolm X. You can go talk to Martin Luther King. You can go talk to so many different guys. I can I can go down this list. Bayard Rustin, right? You can go talk to so many of these guys, right? You can go talk to uh, Fred Hampton in Chicago, the uh, Black Panther Party. Coincidentally, all of these guys, they're young enough to still be alive naturally right now, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at, uh, that now they're all gone. Of course, when you have a generation of people who grew up seeing the strongest people in their leadership magically disappear, their fathers incarcerated. And again, I'm not speaking for all Black people. The Black experience is so varied, right? But I am speaking to the heavy statistics, right? But there seems to be less contemplating on the opposition to hip hop when it comes to the causes as to which and why the community is the way that it is, right? Mm -hmm. You can't tell the kid who just made the song, Bigger Picture, Lil Baby, Mm -hmm. that how he's presenting himself is wrong, what he's talking about is wrong, when he hasn't had a father figure, he's had to be survival mode at all costs, and now he's thrown into fame. You know what I mean? Like, we're we're dehumanizing all the aspects of hip hop where we always humanize country music. We always humanize other forms. Now, mind you, in those forms of music have their degradation in it as well. And so what I'm trying to point out here is that 
The claiming of identity is because there's nobody affirming that identity. I can probably count on two hands how many times I've seen a commercial about a black male that was saying that you are amazing, like subliminally or directly. I can count many, many, many modes of advertisement where I've seen a white male and he's been like God's gift to earth. You feel what I'm saying? And so, again, the goal of what I'm saying is not to point fingers and blame, right? It's just to moment of contemplation, like she said, right? <laughs> to yes. take a moment and contemplate the impact and the way in which we're judging things, right? And that mm-hmm. that's another thing with the Christian culture, right? We're, we're you know, pr- Protestant culture, right? We have these rules. I think they're great rules. I think they're great principles. Sometimes we get into our religious principles, we get into our circle, mm-hmm. and we stop uh, wrestling with outside information. We start wrestling with outside ideas. We stop being around people who are different than us. That's and right. what that does is it, it stagnates our growth and understanding of the world. So now anything that's remotely different, we demonize, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're actually doing damage when we're not considering the things that I'm referring to. Because again, I'm not trying to have a conversation about racism or no racism. What I'm trying to have a conversation is about personal responsibility for what your beliefs are. So I can jump into a conversation that's non-emotional. You agree with personal responsibility? You agree with being responsible for your beliefs? So let's talk about what some of those beliefs may be about yourself and your community. Well, even what you're saying is have some personal responsibility around the poverty of your friendships and the poverty of your cultural and musical influences. Like you're kind of helping us say like, okay, Pay attention to your insularity. <laughs> Pay attention to where you've drawn such a strong boundary that you're like, yeah, I just I just think that hip hop is just really degrading and just awful. And yeah, there are some of those elements there. But what you're saying is get curious about the why. Get curious about the why at, underneath some of those statements and get curious about the cultural and systemic things that are happening that are rendering some of our young people into this position, that this is their fiat. This is their declaration of like, hey, I have a right to be here. So it may not come out <laughs> like super clean and packaged in a clean little box with a bow on top, because guess what? That's not the life experience that they have. So yeah. I love that you're inviting us into that curiosity. So even in my humility of like, I know nothing and I want to learn, I've experienced the entertainment industry, the finance industry, uh, marketing services industry. Uh, one thing that most, a lot of people don't know about me, but people close to me, I've been in the community health industry. And so I've ran a fatherhood program and I've learned about infant mortality rates. I've learned about the importance of early childhood education. And so I'm gonna bring this back to our conversation. When kids are young, everybody understands this concept that if a kid is acting out, something's going on. We need to investigate why. If he's yelling, does he want water? If she's doing something, there's a reason. And the quote is, a need is not being met. For some reason, that's the Bible when it comes to dealing with kids. Now, mind you, I've taken parenting classes. And so this is like the language of early childhood education or or even uh, childhood development. Meet needs. When a need is not being met, they will act out. And so For some reason, we have that thought process. And at some point, it just magically switch. When we get into adolescence or early teens or even adults, there's this idea that that just doesn't exist anymore. No, if somebody's acting out, there's a reason why. And more than likely, we need to figure out what need is not being met. Because the goal is to 
make sure that we do unto others as we wish people would do for us. If my need is not being met, I would like for somebody to recognize and try to try to step in. Well, Diavandre, your drive, your vision for what Danspire can be, the ways in which you have already transformed this community, and the ways in which you're inviting us to unknow the stories of our minds about ourselves and about each other, about hip hop overall, and to move in fluidity and to see ourselves as a verb. Um, I can't thank you enough for just dropping all this wisdom on us today. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. So we're trying to learn how to not be dependent on the maps that we're given, the confines of the stories of our beliefs that imprison us or cause us to be judgmental toward what we don't know in other cultures, in other forms of expression. So here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking with me from this conversation. We are lions in the zoo. Lions that forget that we are wired for courageous capacity beyond our limited belief systems, beyond the the limits that we've created in our own cages of our minds. So be remembered to your potential not to the cage you might be stuck in. True North Wisdom number two, there's this moment where Diavandre said that the biggest block is our insecurities, and so we dress up our insecurities and call them rules. (laughs) I mean, that was so intense. And it's so true. So if we are committed to the path of creative possibility, We need to be fearlessly willing to be vulnerable, to hold our insecurities, to look at them, to get curious about where those stories came from, and to notice the ways that we are unconsciously making rules out of them. You could always do the trick and practice of what I shared with Diavandre and that story about running. Ask yourself if there's any statement that you say on a regular basis where you employ the language, I am a blank, (laughs) or I am a person who blank. And my challenge to you this week is to get curious about that, or take it a step further and get out of the posture of that belief and practice doing it anyway and see what happens. Move your body through that stuck point and be surprised like I was about running. Final piece of True North Wisdom. Speaking of curiosity, get curious about what you don't understand. Notice where judgment starts to creep in. I really appreciated the ways that Diavandre related back to even child development. We would never look at a screaming child and say, what on earth is that? (laughs) There are needs that are not being met all around us. So get curious about what is being expressed, even if those expressions are not your particular preferred expressions. Cannot create a harmony if you're not listening to the other notes around you. So let's harmonize, shall we? That's it for today's episode. If you enjoy this podcast, this conversation, or any of the other unknowing podcasts that have been airing through season one, I'd like to encourage you to join me in co-creating this show and making it possible. 
This podcast is brought to you entirely because of my community of patrons. Patrons also receive an accompanying unknowing masterclass as well as lots of other goods. So check it out. I also want to invite you to consider rating the podcast or sharing it with a friend. This music you're listening to is by Avila, a duo that I'm a part of. The song is called Some Understanding. You can get it anywhere you get your music. And finally, as the poet Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I know I'm trying. <laughs>